everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. This is Derek Taylor. Um, I'm um, uh, sorry for what happened uh, last night. And so let me begin again my lecture on uh, the Great Western Schism. And um, again, hopefully next time I'll do this live so you guys can ask me questions direct. But uh, here I'll start over from the beginning and uh, talk about the Great Western Schism. And um, take place in 1378 when uh, cardinals elect uh, a, uh, a second pope. Um, and so how does this happen? So I started with a lecture. Um, if you look at the, the outline I give you there in the Facebook, uh, YouTube description, uh, the popes leave Rome in 1308. Why? Because there had been some <clears throat> conflict between uh, Boniface VIII, who was pope in 1303, and the king of France, Philip IV, Philip the Fair. And he, uh, uh, once Boniface VIII died, after this conflict ended, um, after a successor who lasted one year in 1304, the cardinals took their sweet time about electing a new pope. Uh, in 1308, they selected a French bishop, the Bishop of Archbishop of Bordeaux, uh, as Clement V. And um, he uh, refrained from coming from France, where he was at, to Rome, because Philip IV of France, the king, wanted to dig up, <laughs> as it were, Boniface VIII and give him a posthumous trial and condemn him as a heretic. Uh, and so to convince him not to do this, uh, the uh, Pope Clement V, the French Pope, decided to stop in the papal territory of Avignon. It was a vassal state of the pap papacy at that point. Uh, he settles down there and um, sets up the papal uh, court there, the Curia there. And what happens is he intended this to be temporary, but it became uh, much more than temporary. The popes were there for 70 years, better part of 70 years. And they had several reasons for doing this, and not just because Clement V was concerned about the King of France. <clears throat> they had several concerns about being in Rome at that point, and one of which was uh, there was lots of conflict in Rome, uh, partly because there was conflict between noble families in the city of Rome. Uh, a couple of noble families, the Orsini and the Colonna, like to fight over the papacy and try to influence it. Uh, there was conflict between uh, Italian city-states based on differing loyalties uh, between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, which is sort of his German empire, uh, which you know German emperors had tried to come into, the, uh, into Italy and take territory uh, for several centuries. This led to a split between followers within various northern Italian city-states, <clears throat> Those who followed the Pope were called Guelphs. Those who followed, followed the uh, the uh, emperors were called Ghibellines. This caused a lot of conflict. If you know your Dante, this gets into um, the, the, the Divine Comedy. Dante was a, a Guelph. He was a, a supporter of the papacy initially. <clears throat> um, Clement V uh, and later, uh, well, definitely later, uh, popes who were in Avignon wanted to stay there partly because the Hundred Years' War broke out between England and France, and they wanted to mediate between those two powers. They also decided not to go back partly because Rome wasn't the greatest place to be in the 1300s. The Rome you're familiar with, hopefully familiar with, the one with all the wonderful, ornate Renaissance architecture, does not exist in 1308. It is kind of a little village in the middle of Italy with fractious nobles, 
uh, a very, very turbulent mob. Uh, the people of Rome are really, how can I put this, riot prone. As you'll see, this plays a part in the, in the schism. Uh, so they had good reasons for wanting to sort of take a vacation from the city of Rome. And so um, they did. Now, what happens is this provokes or reactions among the uh, peoples of Christendom, um, particularly in, um, in places like England and the Holy Roman Empire. And the reason being, of course, is because the papal territory in Avignon is so close to the Kingdom of France. And particularly English and German observers during the 1300s uh, were bitter about what they thought the papacy was becoming, which was a lackey of the French monarchy, which, by the way, most modern historians don't think that. They were fairly as even-handed as they could be when they were, when they were in, uh, uh, in Avignon. Um, but the Avignon papacy also attracted moral censures from people like, we'll get to Petrarch in a second, this is the poet Petrarch, uh, but also saints like St. Saint Catherine of Siena and St. Bridget of Sweden and others for uh, the luxury of the court at Avignon. Um, the, some, not all, the popes at Avignon, uh, they, they like to live things up, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, and in fact, this is in the context of, in the 1300s, growing discontent about the church's wealth throughout Western Christendom. Um, in particular, you have a conflict which uh, flares up in the 1300s, which is sometimes called the debate on apostolic poverty. This is a long story. It probably deserves its own, own lecture. But um, toward the end of the 13th century, the 1290s, there began to be this rift within the Franciscan order. Uh, some of the followers of St. Francis wanted to take his rule of apostolic poverty deadly literally, as if the followers of this, they sometimes called them spiritual Francis, Franciscans because they, they were against having any private property whatsoever. The church should have no possessions. The order should have no possessions. And there were really radical, the most radical ones were the ones that um, said you shouldn't have any property, that sort of thing. They were condemned pretty early on. But uh, during the, um, the 1320s, when one of these Avignon popes, John XXII, got into a tussle with some of the leaders of the Franciscan order, uh, he condemned even the more some of the more moderate ones, basically, basically claiming, actually condemns the idea that... Uh, that some of these Franciscans had, that uh, Christ and the apostles didn't own any property. And he actually condemned that. Um, so there is this idea that um, the papacy is becoming this really worldly institution while it's in Avignon more than it has before, has been before. Uh, and just overall, of course, the seat of the Pope's authority is in Rome for a reason. It draws its authority from the fact that St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred there. And so being away from that, from its seat of authority, bothers a lot of people. That's what bothers St. Catherine of Siena, mostly. That's one of the things that bothers her. Um, and in fact, this you see the first part of my lecture there in the outlines called Captivity. This is sometimes referred to the Avignon Papacy as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. Now, um, that's actually a modern, uh, interpret modern phrase. Uh, but it goes back to Petrarch. I mentioned the poet Petrarch who actually visited Avignon. And he's the one who has a famous uh, wrote a letter in which he described himself uh, there. Uh, he says, quote, now, I'm in, uh, now I am living in France, in the Babylon of the West. The sun in its travels sees nothing more hideous than this place on the shores of the wild Rhone, the Rhone River. Uh, here reign the successes of the poor fishermen of Galilee. They have strangely, strangely forgotten their origin. So you have um, people complaining because it seems to be too luxurious too um, decadent. Um, 
but in fact, papal governance was actually, uh, in a way, um, modern modern secular historians, especially maybe if you're a church historian, not as much, but secular medieval historians tend to take a, a more benign view of the Avignon papacy. Uh, the reason being is that they were actually pretty good administrators. They um, they did we'll look at this in a second. They did live in luxury. That's some of them, a lot of them, uh, but they were not corrupt. They were actually very good at their jobs, uh, and in fact, uh, they made papal government a lot more efficient. And uh, they also, some of these Pope, Avignon popes, made um, the papacy into a center of European culture. For example, John the Twenty Second, I already mentioned, as being condemning these these um, uh, sort of radical Franciscans, uh, founded the papal library at Avignon. Um, but it is true, uh, some popes lived in ostentatious luxury. Uh, Clement V, excuse me, Clement VI, excuse me, the successor to Clement V, uh, in particular, um, built a whole new palace for the popes there because the one they had that wasn't nice enough and lived pretty high on the hall. And we know this, by the way, we have, the papal administrators were very good. We have lots of records of what they spent, what they did, their household expenses, and they went way up under certain popes. They went down among others, though. Uh, Urban V uh, was a reforming pope. He tried to keep, cut back on papal expenses. But one of the things to keep in mind about the papacy in the 14th century is very much, um, you know how sometimes people talk about the church being divine and human? That is especially true of the 14th century papacy. The pope is a monarch in the 14th century. And he has to do things like uh, send cardinals on diplomatic missions. And if you're going to try to intervene and, and mediate between the English and the French, you're going to need to send cardinals there. They need to have retinues. They need to have households. They're going to need to um, uh, they need to have all this stuff uh, that costs money. Diplomacy costs money. At the same time, uh, partly because um, Rome and did this anyway previously, but because they left their territory. Remember, the papacy has its own secular state back in Italy. While they were gone for 70 years, several other powers, the Holy Roman Emperors, the kings of Naples from southern Italy, tried to carve up papal territories, which means they had to raise money to send troops to fight to keep the territory. That cost a lot of money. You also had, uh, at the same time, um, the papacy actually engaging in large-scale missions. Um, the Avignon popes sent missions to other places, China, India, Persia, uh, modern-day Iran, um, Armenia, and even Turkestan, uh, all paid for, by the way, by papal taxes, which everybody hated in the 14th century. Um, which So there was some purpose, my point is, behind all this, the, the increasing wealth of papacy. It wasn't all being spent on palaces and, and uh, stuff like that, and, and uh, good French food, which, by the way, they did spend on really good French food. Uh, that was one of the reasons for staying in Avignon, according to their critics, which I can't doubt is actually true. It is a lot better than Italian food. Uh, the problem, of course, is that the papacy is not supposed to be primarily about administration or government and cultivating the arts, right? They're supposed to be leading the church to holiness and salvation, uh, which, of course, attracted more and more censure because of its growing wealth. It's very visible, very visible as well. One other thing that's happening, though, at the same time that this administration is becoming more prolific is that it's growing in, um, not just in its reach and extent, the, the uh, curia, the cardinals who run the papal household, are becoming much more powerful. <clears throat> Um, they're beginning to assume greater powers, tries to come back. He actually moves the papal household back to Rome in 1367. 
Uh, but they're still fighting in the, in the Papal States. There's still all sorts of tensions going on. He eventually leaves and goes back to Avignon in 1370 uh, and reigns until um, 1376, when uh, Gregory XI is elected uh, pope. And uh, he finally, and he is um, given encouragement in this by St. Catherine of Siena, who writes a lot of really, really fiery letters demanding he go back to Rome, which in January of 1377, he does make the journey back to Rome uh, and comes back by the end of the year. And again, one of the things to stress about this is that at the time, nobody knew this, that this was going to be permanent. Again, it already happened once and didn't stick. Uh, but he dies uh, in March of 1378. And so a conclave uh, takes place amidst serious unrest in Rome. Uh, and the cardinals are looking, the College of Cardinals is looking for uh, some stability to try to, try to mediate between people, uh, uh, Italian concerns, especially the people of Rome, we'll get this in a moment, and of course the Cardinals, most of whom at this, by this point are French. Remember, they've been in France for 70 years. Uh, they're actually in the conclave that will elect the new Pope, uh, includes 11 French Cardinals, four Italian, and one Spanish Cardinal. So there's definitely a national dominance there. And in particular, the Roman mob made very clear um, that they wanted an, uh, a Roman or at least an Italian cardinal to be pope, they were, as well as Roman officials, by the way. Rome had a government, a secular government. Um, they were all very insistent. Uh, and how they make their, by the way, how they make their um, their concerns known? They don't have any official role, of course, in electing popes at this point. Um, they do it through, well, rioting, to be honest with you. Uh, I'll just give you one example. I don't have time to dwell on this, but um, one of the chants, apparently, while the conclave was going on, that these, that the mob in Rome chanted at the cardinals who were trying to elect a pope was this, and I'm quoting here from my sources, quote, we want a Roman or at least an Italian, or by the keys of St. Peter, we will kill and cut to pieces these French and foreigners, starting first with the cardinals, unquote. Um, and if you're wondering, by the way, that sounds shocking, it shouldn't. Uh, in the Middle Ages, this is fairly relatively common. Um, historians have recognized this, by the way, in societies where you don't have a formal voice, people, the people, you can call them mob, whatever you want, sometimes they will take their, they will take action to their own hands and, and they will, they will by sort of force make their wishes known. Don't always get it, by the way, it doesn't always work, but this, this is, this happens. This is one of the reasons why they wanted to get out of Rome in the first place, the popes. Uh, and so the day the conclave begins um, in uh, in April uh, of 1378, um, excuse me, the, uh, the uh, first day of it, the uh, Roman Bob breaks into the papal kitchen before the election of the Pope and steals uh, papal wine and gets drunk. Uh, despite this, the next day on April um, 8th, um, 1378, the cardinals, and I say this because they were disturbed by this, but we'll get this in a moment, this is important to understand. They elected Bartolomeo Prignano, who was the Archbishop of Bari in southern Italy, um, to be, uh, who, who takes the name Pope Urban VI. Soon after the election, that day, that afternoon, another mob breaks into the papal, uh, breaks into the conclave, which I think is being held in St. Peter's, um, and um, ransacks um, uh, the conclave, as well as the house of another cardinal in Rome. Despite all this, the cardinals reaffirm um, Urban VI's election as pope in writing, and he is installed two days later on Sunday at Mass, uh, April 10th of uh, 
1378. This is very important. They basically two or three times reiterated, this is the Pope, we've chosen him. I'll come back to this. And uh, first moment, who was Urban VI? Well, Urban VI was a um, papal administrator. He'd been an administrator in the Avignon Papacy, but he was from Italy. And he was well regarded because he was a very efficient, honest administrator. And it seemed like he'd be a good compromise between the cardinals from France and the cardinals from Italy. Uh, he, in fact, by the way, was not a cardinal. In fact, he was the la was the last uh, pope to be elected who came from outside the College of Cardinals. And um, and uh, he was uh, uh, selected for that reason. However, uh, he was a reformer, by the way. Uh, he quickly, quickly uh, displayed personal characteristics that would help participate the crisis. Uh, he had a violent, and I mean violent, temper. Um, he showed no ability to take counsel from anybody else. Uh, he routinely uh, denounced cardinals. Uh, when I say violent, I mean literally not just denounce them in violent words in what some people describe as insane ways. He literally at one point threatened, seemed on the point of punching one of his cardinals before somebody you know, yelled, what are you doing, Holy Father, uh, in one of these meetings. Um, and so he had real personal issues, did Urban VI. On the other hand, he was also a big time reformer. Uh, he made clear, remember he had these cardinals who in Avignon were trying to limit papal power. Uh, he would have none of this. And more to the point, he wanted to reform the papacy to make it less, well, luxurious. Uh, he tried to reduce papal expenditures, which, by the way, if you don't know, were always more, um, the papacy was always running uh, more of a deficit than the cardinals did. The cardinals, they just lived on, they took their money and lived on it. The papacy had to live on it and, of course, conduct foreign policy and all other stuff. Um, he tried to cut uh, cut curio, uh, salaries of the cardinals in the curia. Um, if I have it, my, I don't know that's up my notes, but perhaps it'll by much as half of their salaries. He also tried to forbid them from taking pensions from foreign princes, a source of their revenue. And he struck back at one of the major, major problems of the Middle Ages, simony, the buying and selling of offices. Uh, he tried to forbid the accumulation of benefices. You know what benefice is? This is the, the property that goes along with a church or a living somewhere where cardinals could collect these and get the, the rents from them and never actually go there. And so this is what he's trying to stop. Um, just to give you even lesser stuff than this, when popes were elected in the Middle Ages, they used to give very large gifts of money to the cardinals. When he's elected, first thing he does, no gifts. So he is, on the one hand, he's kind of the worst of both worlds, Urban VI. Um, he's a competent administrator. And if you don't know anything about administrators, they make terrible politicians because they don't like people, they like things. But he's also a reformer. Uh, someone who's deadly serious, and that would be good, right? He's a performer. He wants to be get rid of luxury and be ascetic. The problem of sometimes with reformers is they also hate people <laughs> because the only thing they see is the purity of their ideal, and they don't have any patience for anybody else. Piled on top of the fact that he had personal problems, as we kind of uh, uh, kind of um, outlined here. And so, within a few weeks, within two or three weeks, there are already rumblings about Urban the Sixth. By, end, by the end of June, all the French cardinals have left Rome. And so with the encouragement of the French king, Charles VI, uh, they, in August, they go and meet at the city of Agnani, <clears throat> excuse me, um, along with two other cardinals, uh, two other Italian cardinals. 
uh, and declare the election of Urban VI invalid. And the reason they do this, they say, is they were pressured by the mob into electing an Italian. In other words, they're saying they were threatened and weren't free to hold the, uh, a real conclave. Now, I'll come back to this in a moment. It's a real important point. This is the entire basis of the schism. If it was a valid conclave, this whole thing was basically illegal in turn to church law. In response, uh, Urban VI uh, decided to sort of do away with them by stacking the, the uh, curia, uh, stacking the college. He created 29 new cardinals. And so, seeing the writing on the wall, uh, on September 20th, 1378, the uh, the cardinals uh, elected the French cardinals who had left in the couple, uh, at uh, Agnani elected Robert of Geneva, as uh, who was the Bishop of Cambrai, as Pope Clement the Seventh, uh, who eventually, of course, takes up his residence in Avignon, thus starting the Great Schism. Now, a couple of things about this. Um, First of all, when this happens, it almost automatically divides Western Christendom. This is the next part. Christendom divided. Um, and uh, generally speaking, this is something that's confusing about this. You will have kings, you know, formally, formally announcing their allegiance to one pope or the other. It changes. I'll go through this. It's very confusing. But in general, England, um, the Holy Roman Empire, most of Italy, Scandinavia, Hungary, were in the Roman camp. They favored the Roman Pope. Um, while on the Avignon side, obviously France, it's right next to France, but also Castile and Aragon, the Spanish kingdoms, Scotland, Naples, uh, Savoy and Sicily were the parts of Italy that went with the Avignon Popes. And one of the things you can kind of see from all this is that this is dividing people along national lines. Uh, most obviously England and France. They're fighting a war and so as soon as this happens, you know the English aren't going to go for the Avignon Pope. Um, and so I, historians tend to talk about, I don't want to use the word nationalism. That's not appropriate. The reason why it's because that's a more of a modern ideology. But national feeling, even some national identity definitely plays a role in what happens. Um, and so you have it divided between these two different, uh, they call them obediences, uh, I'm going to call them rival claimants to the throne, and I'll explain how to go with this stuff. I'm not a theologian, so I don't want to do this, but um, you have this uh, division, which I should mention, by the way, it divides the clergy. That's the next thing. This is probably the biggest impact that the schism had. Uh, it divides their differing loyalties within countries, like even within France, there are partner bishoprics that are still loyal to Rome. Not many, one or two, but they're there. Um Within um, religious orders, there can be divisions between different houses, same order, uh, under the same mother house, perhaps, sometimes. Um, in some areas, you even, you even have rival claimants to the same bishopric existing at the same time. This happens in Ireland in the 1390s. Um, and, of course, both popes at certain points excommun excommunicate each other and their followers. So technically speaking, the entirety of Western Christendom was actually excommunicated at one point during the schism. Uh, probably the most uh, hilarious, I say hilarious, it's, it is, it's pathetic. The most silly manifestation of this division was when in the uh, 1380s, 1383, the Bishop of Norwich in England actually tried to lead a crusade against the supporters of the Avignon Pope in Flanders. The whole thing was a catastrophe. It brought everybody into disrepute who was involved with it. But you get the idea. This is this is insane in a lot of ways. Um, 
And um, and I think it must have affected. And it, by the way, this affected priests even down at the parish level to a certain degree. You would have in the same bishop or priest who have different loyalties. So it could be it could be very divisive in that way. And so by the 1390s, uh, when this has been ongoing for you know 15 over 15 years, um, the Avignon claimant Clement the seventh dies in 1394. Charles the sixth, uh, who'd been king in France. Um, actually writes to the cardinals at Avignon not to elect a successor. Charles wanted them to, 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 to get rid of the schism at this point. What happens is that uh, the letter doesn't get there until after they have already elected a successor, <laughs> Pedro de Luna, who's a Spanish cardinal as Benedict XIII, or the claimant. We usually call him an anti-pope. Um, and France was, of course, the biggest player in all this. The French kingdom... The French, we'll get to the University of Paris in a moment, probably had as much influence as anybody trying to resolve this. Uh, one of the problems was, throughout all this, Charles VI, if you don't know, went through several bouts of insanity during this period. <laughs> and so he was kind of useless at certain points. And yet, Benedict, uh, Benedict XIII, the Avignon Pope who succeeded the first one, uh, was such a, he was a really hard, he was a very, everyone respected, by the way, his, um, his, um, his piety uh he was not he was not he was a, he's definitely a, a real um uh he was not a he was not a, he didn't live in luxury he was well regarded personally but he was really stubborn and would, would not give up his claim to the very end to be pope um by 1398 both france and the kingdom of spain had both withdrawn their obedience from him so this stuff goes back and forth back and forth at one point in 1399 the french actually lay siege to the papal palace at Avignon and try to hold a Benedict prisoner. Um, eventually he gets out. And in fact, they actually have um, uh, meetings with him to resume, resume their obedience to him in 1403. This is how crazy things are getting. Uh, well, at the same time, I'll get to this in a moment, uh, the universities are getting involved, trying to come up with uh, solutions to this crisis. Um, in 1406, uh, another, this is the, actually, uh, there was another one before him, but uh, a new Roman Pope, Gregory XII, was elected, and initially, he seemed eager to terminate the conflict. However, when he, a meeting was arranged between him and the, uh, and uh, the Avignon claimant, Benedict XIII, in 1407, um, uh, near Genoa, uh, Gregory XII changed his mind and refused to meet his rival. And it got so bad that a number of cardinals from both sides arranged to have a meeting, a council, uh, on their own almost at Pisa in 1409. And um, they actually got beforehand, finally, both claimants to the, the papal throne to agree to resign. However, after the cardinals showed up at Pisa, uh, both popes refused to show up, saying the council was uncanonical, and both held their own rival councils. And so all the Council of Pisa did was to uh, elect a third claimant to the uh, papacy named Alexander V. So things have gone all off the rails by 1409. This is a mess. All right. So I have to stop for a moment because this is dramatic. This is horrible, right? All this stuff going on. So I need to get to the reactions to the schism, which is very interesting. As you can see, as you can guess, this did cause a lot of consternation for people in the, um, uh, in the period. And in fact, I've mentioned before the first little part of their reactions to schisms, saints and visionaries. Uh, I mentioned you had saints all throughout the Avignon period trying to get popes back to Italy. One of them was St. Catherine of Siena. 
Uh, she only lived for a couple of years after uh, um, the Pope's return to Rome, but in that time she was a fierce defender of the Roman line, uh, as was there was a royal, uh, there was a Franciscan, um, uh, a Franciscan, he wasn't a saint, but he was a well-regarded um, cleric named Pedro of uh, Aragon, who was actually of royal blood, who was a royal uh, son, actually, who was on the Roman side. On the Avignon side, you also had saints backing um, the Avignon Pope. The most famous is being St. Vincent of Ferrar, who was, of course, a great preacher. Uh, for most of the first um, few years of his uh, his papacy, he defended the Spanish Pope, Benedict the, Benedict the, Thir the Spanish anti-pope, I should say, Benedict XIII. Again, this is partly out of national feeling. St. Vincent's, of course, Spanish. But in 1399, St. Vincent received visions purporting him to go uh, conduct missions across Europe. And he largely abandons the controversy until, as we'll get to this, uh, he'll eventually repudiate the Avignon papacy and his uh, his former Spanish pope there. Uh, but more striking than this in some ways are um, the influence of lay visionaries in this period. Uh, and there, I'll mention a couple of them because they're really fascinating. Um, who, who uh, as you can imagine, they saw apocalyptic portents and all this. Um, one of the more interesting ones is a woman named Constance de Rabastans, who was a French woman, peasant, totally uneducated, uh, who supported the Roman popes, and um, revealed in revelations she got uh, from Christ um, that the bishops who supported the Avignon papacy would burn in hell from the 1380s onward. Um, very, very violent images, by the way, in her, in her, uh, uh, in her, um, uh, her visions. Which of course this is in papal this is in French territory. Uh, she's denied recognition, uh, and she barely escapes uh, the Inquisition as a result of all of this. On the Avignon side, uh, in the 1380s, uh, you have um, uh, another again another um, um, peasant French woman named uh, Marie Robin, uh, who comes forward uh, claiming visions to support the Avignon Pope. Uh, and of course, Clement VII, the, Pope, the Avignon claimant at the time, was very eager to have some sort of legitimacy, so he latches on to, uh, to Marie, and um, and she continues having these visions, by the way, into the into the uh, the reign of uh, uh, his successor, Benedict the Thirteenth, in Avignon. Um, but as things mounted, as tensions mounted over finding a solution for the schism, her visions became really exceedingly dark, and by the end of her life, she dies uh, in 1399. Uh, her final vision is one in which Christ in vengeance destroys Paris. <laughs> so you have these really amazing, you know, and this is, again, the reason why these are so amazing. They're amazing in a religious sense, obviously. But for an historian, these are ordinary people being affected by this. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, so that's one reaction. Another reaction are the universities, <clears throat> who are, all of whom have favor some sort of, I'll get to the different proposals they had in a moment for unity, uh, all of whom try to play to uh, put forward um, solutions to this. Uh, I'll mention the University of Paris most uh, notably. It has the biggest impact. Uh, one thing to note about this is from 1381 onward, the University of Paris forbade the writing, forbade any uh, person writing about the schism to use the words heretic or schismatic in their treatises. And many of their scholars argued that sacraments offered by clerics of different obediences were valid and could be taken good, in good faith by laymen. Um, Paris tried to influence other universities. It sent entreaties to Oxford, to Vienna, and places like this. Uh, nobody listened to them. <laughs> uh, again, things were divided along national lines in a lot of ways. Um, 
And in fact, one of the odd things about the, the schism, it had the impact of expanding universities greatly, uh, partly because you had, uh, especially the popes in Avignon, um, uh, founding new universities. Why? Well, if you have, univers have universities that are against you, you can always found new ones to have them support you, basically. Uh, and so it led to further growth that way. Uh, and there were also literary responses. I'm going to kind of a short, short change you on here just to save time. Um, but some of the big, um, this is you know the 14th century, 1300s into the 1400s, you had the rise of vernacular literatures uh, throughout Europe, and so you're going to have people like um, one of Chaucer's contemporaries in England, named John Gower, will write several long poetic works in which he'll talk about the schism uh, in uh, in the uh, preface of his works. You'll have uh, someone like Christine de Pizan. If you don't know who she is, she's an amazing person. She was probably the first, first, first professional woman writer of secular literature. So she was a writer. She wrote about chivalric love and, and stuff like that. Uh, she wrote uh, treatises on um, uh, the schism. She, by the way, was uh, worked for the French king, so that was her background. Uh, my point is, you have definitely have. The literate laity, of which there's an increasing number, not a whole lot still yet. Uh, I'm not sure that Chaucer ever mentions it directly in, say, the Canterbury Tales or, or other major works, but that's clearly on the mind of people, right? Clearly a problem for people who are doing this. But this leads us to the last point here about reactions, and that's the, a question I put up there. What did ordinary lay people think? And by ordinary, I mean the vast majority of people in Middle Eastern Europe are illiterate peasants. And I say that because... Because they're illiterate, we don't really know, for the most part, how they reacted to this. Our evidence is very, very thin. However, for the most part, we I think we can safely assume it doesn't seem like that the sacraments kept being offered. Uh, people kept showing up. And by the way, when we think about this sort of thing, um, you have to remember in the Middle Ages, a little different when people <clears throat> encountered the sacraments. Because, of course, today we encourage... Um, frequent communion. Uh, in the Middle Ages, you would not have communion maybe more than once a year. Um, and the reason why a lot of things go into this, people were so, you know, they were taught this was, it was this amazing thing, right? People were afraid of it. They were afraid of taking communion um, and uh, in an unworthy way and, and being damned. So they didn't take it, but once a year after they confessed and all this other stuff. Uh, in fact, your encounter with the faith, if you've been a, a medieval peasant, uh, in the Middle Ages, would have mostly been through stuff you might almost think as uh, as as being sacramentals rather than sacraments, things like uh, pilgrimages and processions and stuff like that. It would be some of this, but um, uh, but as far as we can tell, again, the whole thing, you know, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of people calling each other heretics or schismatics at a local level. It seems like, for the most part, I, this is my this is me guessing. I don't know. I'm not sure it affected ordinary lay people all that much. I think there's really a big problem for the clergy, especially, who now had this embarrassing, and especially for the medieval papacy, when we've talked about this, I talked about this in my earlier lectures, uh, it had made a lot of big claims. It got into a lot of fights with medieval kings over its authority, and it was the, it was the leader of the church, and it was the unity and all this stuff. Now it's all, of course, causing division, which is, in a ways, uh, a crazy thing. I, I personally doubt it. I don't think it. I don't think it affected people at the lowest level very much, which is, mo which is most people. Uh, people that did affect, besides the clergy, of course, were the, the literate laity, and that I think was damaging to the, to the church in the long run. But as you can call, see, it did cause this division. <laughs> so.
Okay, how do we get out of this? Well, there were several solutions that were put forward, or tried at least, in trying to heal the schism. The first, most direct, which was actually tried by, by the uh, Avignon claimant almost immediately, uh, Clement VII, which is force of arms. <laughs> uh, Clement actually had, uh, I think it was the King of Naples, sent an army to Italy to try to get rid of <laughs> Urban VI. Which, again, if it seems extreme, remember remember how violent in temperament Urban VI could have been. Uh, but they were soundly defeated um, a year after uh, he sent them there in 1379. The people of Italy, on, on the whole, remained loyal, especially Rome, which is always not a given thing. They remained loyal to uh, the papacy, the Roman papacy, throughout this period. Didn't work that way. <clears throat> the other major, um, major... Um, um, way of healing the schism that was put forward by especially the uh, University of Paris in the beginning was um, what they called the via sessionis, which basically means it's a Latin term for voluntary resignation of both claimants, and then have a new election. This is the one they favored. The reason this never worked, by the way, is because each claimant basically would not give up. <laughs> basically, it took it, it took a lot of forcing to get people. And again, this is why this is this is this is bad for the church. Is you see people who. They're, they, and some of them were, you know, you can be perfectly sincere in your beliefs and also not want to give up power. The two things are not mutually exclusive. And it's pretty clear that was what both these people were thinking. Hey, I, I'm the right guy, and therefore I have uh, the right to hold this, and I can't give it up because the wrong guy will get it. And there's this, all this, this thinking. Uh, it's a real problem, and that's why it doesn't work. A third solution, which is never really tried, um, is uh, some people, some universities put forth the idea of having an independent tribunal of canon lawyers, theologians, so on and so forth, decide the matter as to who their actual claimant is. Nobody wanted this. <laughs> Nobody wanted to listen to the professors tell them what their authority was, I guess. The last solution that actually, as you're going to see, does actually get the church out of this mess is the calling of a general council. An ecumenical council, if you use modern terminology, to um, end the schism. Now, one of the things to note about this is that it's not as if canon lawyers uh, and theologians had not discussed what might happen if there was a schism in the church. I don't understand anything about the medieval church, despite what you may have heard. The medieval church, um, at least in an academic sense, canon lawyers, theologians, they discuss things without much um, censorship. They could discuss all sorts of things. Medieval canon lawyers talked endlessly about you know, what, would, what would happen if the Pope was a heretic. Could, could the Pope be a heretic? These things were discussed nonstop. And by the early 1300s, uh, you're going to have theologians playing with the idea that at least in times of emergency, a council can meet without a Pope having to convene it. Uh, and in fact, um, they're aware, by the way, they're very aware that in the early day, early centuries of the church, all the uh, uh, ecumenical councils uh, were called by someone other than the pope, essentially, usually emperors, Roman emperors. Um, and so they're aware of this. But in particular, you're going to have theologians, again, Paris is big in this, by the 1370s, making even stronger arguments about the authority of a council. Two in particular I'll mention here. They're, they're French, they're Parisians, they're supporters of the Avignon papacy. Uh, Pierre Dailly, uh, I won't mention his, uh, I'll, I won't spell it out, but his name's D-A-I-L-L-Y, uh, uh, who was a Paris theologian, chancellor of the University of Paris, and later on a bishop. Um, and he advocated from the 1380s a general council to end 
the schism, claiming that it could act without the without the popes, without the uh, pope on the basis of the bishop's authority coming from Christ. They were successors to the apostles, and therefore they could uh, call a council to end the schism. His successor, a uh, very, very influential, um, well-regarded um, uh, theologian uh, and priest, Jean Gerson, uh, who was his pupil, actually, a very famous spiritual writer, um, also called for a general council to end this and emphasized those historical examples of councils from the era of the first four centuries in which councils were not called by uh, popes. And I mentioned this, by the way, because it's, a, it's one thing to say that because people knew that it happened, you know, they still thought this is the, this is the problem. OK, you can call a council of the Pope. You still need his ratification of that. That happened early centuries, too. Um, and in fact, this is to get us to the last part of the lecture, part three, a marvelous and perilous in quotation marks, marvelous and perilous reunion, 1409 um, to 1417. Um, because what happens is people get desperate. And in fact, um, what's going to happen is the secular authority is going to step in here to initiate this process. When the um, Pizan claimant to the papacy, Alexander V, dies in 1410, the Curia, the other, the third college of cardinals uh, at Pisa elects John XXIII, who's an anti-pope, who, by the way, had a, I think he had been a mercenary before he became pope. Because I had a really bad reputation before he became uh, anti-pope, I guess. Um, and when he was elected, he announced his intention to call a council to hear the schism. But he dillied and dallied. And it took basically the, the very forceful, emphasis on forceful, urging of the new Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund I uh, to finally force him to meet and call a uh, council at the uh, city of Constance, which I believe is in northern Italy or southern Germany, I can't recall. I have to look it up. It's in imperial territory. That's why it was held there. Key point. Um, and for a meeting of cardinals from the Curia at Pisa, Avignon, and Rome to help get this thing over with. And one of the things about this council is it was kind of unique and uh, novel in the history of the church. And the first thing, of course, you had already had an idea that they could act on their own, coming from these theorists like John Gerson, who was at the, at the council. Uh, Pierre Dailly was a bishop at the Council of Constance. Uh, and unsurprisingly, there was a strong academic presence uh, at the Council of Constance. Uh, there were nearly 300 bishops and 30 cardinals. There were also several hundred doctors of theology and canon lawyers at the council. This is probably the first first council in history where you have something like experts trying to get the church out of the mess it's in. Um, and in fact, it was very much the early sessions were presided over by the Emperor Sigismund. Um, but the major in, uh, innovation in this, the way this is organized, this is important for a reason I'll get to in a moment, is that uh, normally you just have the bishops come and they would vote. They changed this early on. Um, Instead, they had the bishops vote, vote by nazio, nations. And that term, by the way, by nation, um, doesn't necessarily literally mean, I need to be careful with this because I'm actually forgetting a lot of terms, but that term nation, nazio, Latin, comes from the medieval universities. If you don't know, uh, in Paris, for example, the um, um, you would have uh, parts of the university set apart for for foreign students, and that's what Nazio referred to. And so you have 
Ignacio representing different people from different, you know, obediences, like different countries. Uh, a German Nazio, an English Nazio, a French Nazio, later on Italian and Spanish, Italian and later on Spanish ones, rather than as an individual, individual members. And then they voted as a bloc, um, with one vote being allowed to each nation, and then later on to the College of Cardinals as well. Uh, I'll come back to this in a moment. One other thing that's on I should mention is that the, uh, the council had big plans besides just healing the schism. They um, wanted to also initiate a general reform of the church. I mean, general reform in terms of things like, again, dealing with abuses, dealing with, you know, those sorts of things. They also came to do, uh, to condemn two people in their teachings. John Wycliffe, hey, heard my last lecture, John Wycliffe, but also Jan Hus, who was a, a Czech theologian, academic, and reformer. Uh, who was actually, after spending another lecture on this, he actually burnt the stake for being a heretic by the Council of Constance. That's on the agenda. Now, why they did this, by the way, why it's important that they um, that they organized themselves into nations all of a sudden, was that John the 23rd had called the council in part, in part, and this is the Pisan claimant who was really an anti-pope, um, did this, um, called the council because he wanted to rely on Italian cardinals who formed the majority in the council. He was hoping he would be the one they picked, basically. Um, and that's why they did this, is so they could um, uh, stymie that his influence. And so when the uh, the council, he thought the council would condemn his rivals. Instead, as soon as it met, they started investigating his previous life before he got to be pope. Uh, he immediately, quickly agreed to the abdicate. But then in March 1415, he flees to Bavaria, uh, to the Duke of Austria. Uh, for protection and hoping that the council be influenced by his Italian supporters in his absence. Now, I mention this because at this point, um, the cardinals are worried the whole council is going to break up. And so, to justify their authority, because now they don't have a pope, a claimant of the papacy anyway, um, in order to justify its continued existence, they pass a very, very controversial. Um, um, my brain's done, uh, they pass a, a, God, my brain, you know, you pass like a, not a bill, but an act, but a, an act, they declare, a declaration, which is sometimes called, um, different things in the Latin, but it's basically, and I'll, I'll read this to you in a moment, this is really important, um, they basically declare that they have authority directly from Christ to hold the council and end the schism, with or without the Pope. I'll read this to you. This is the beginning of this uh, document, sometimes called Hake Sancta, um, this holy synod. That's the first words of this. Um, it goes like this, the relevant passages. This holy synod, of, holy synod of Constance, constituting a general council and lawfully assembled to root out the present schism and bring about reform of the church in head and members, declares that being lawfully assembled in the Holy Spirit, uh, constituting a general council and representing the Catholic Church militant, it holds power immediately from Christ, and that anyone of whatsoever state or dignity, even the papal, is bound to obey it in matters which pertain to the faith, the rooting out of the said schism, and the general reform of the church in head and members." Unquote. It's basically saying they can act independently of the pope. Uh, and this comes, by the way, from these theorists of what we're going to call, this is the term for it, conciliarism. There are people at the council who want to propose replacing the Pope with general councils, basically. 
uh, and this is going to be a very controversial document. When it was actually read out initially, this this uh, this declaration, that passage was left out by the cardinal who read it out in the, in the council because he was so offended by it. And they actually had another session just so they could read the whole thing out. Uh, and I say this because it was controversial at the time. It's been controversial since. Um, but they did this. I think most of them, I, well, I'll come back to this. Um, this was, I think, an emergency measure just to make sure if they elected a new pope, people would actually obey him and not try to elect a different one. But we'll come back to that. And so, uh, following this this uh, this uh, declaration, um, Sigismund, remember him, the Holy Roman Emperor who called the, the council, invades Bavaria, arrests John the Twenty-Third, brings him back to Constance, where the council deposes him in May of 1415. He's done. At this point, Gregory XII, who is the current Roman occupant of the papacy, um, agrees to abdicate on the condition that he be allowed to formally convoke the assembly himself. That is to say, he can give his formal approbation to the assembly, so it's a true council. That's an important point. I'll come back to it. Um, partly, by the way, in order to assert the legitimacy of the Roman line of popes. Council fathers agree, and he eventually abdicates. In fact, I think he's the only one who ever abdicates in this whole this whole miserable situation. Uh, on July 4th, by the way, of 1415. July 4th. Um, and so at that point, you only have one more. One um, claimant to the throne, the Avignon claimant, Benedict XIII. Again, a very upstanding guy, but really, really tenacious and stubborn. Uh, at this point, both uh, Emperor Sigismund, uh, the kings of Castile and Aragon, the Spanish kings, try to convince him to abdicate. He will not do it. Uh, at that point, the Spanish king and his bishops all formally abandon their allegiance to him. And then two years later, in July of 1417, the council for, uh, formally deposes Benedict XIII. He's done. Several months of wrangling would follow uh, on how to elect a new pope. Eventually, they got to have an agreement of two-thirds of the majority of the nations there and the College of Cardinals to crown a new pontiff. And at that point, they uh, acted pretty quickly. Uh, within three days, the conclave elected on November 11th. Another meaningful day, right? Uh, St. Martin's Day. November 11th, 14, uh, uh, Veterans Day, for a reason today. Uh, they elected Odo Colonna from a Roman noble family uh, who took the name Martin V. And with that, thus ended, uh, the council finished its work a few months later, and thus ended the Great Schism. So, a couple of reflections on this. Uh, in terms of, let's start with how this happened and what we can learn from it. One of the things to note about this, this, uh, this Great Schism is that I think you have to, again, from my perspective here, you have to put this down to this being in its origins a power struggle this is really about a power struggle between the cardinals of the curia and the pope which sort of balloons and gets out of hand i say this because um at no point really other than who's actually the pope is there really any are there really any doctrinal issues at at, uh, at stake here for the most part uh, you don't have, and again, you don't have that sense, by the way, of people like, oh, you're a schism, you support the Avignon Pope, you're a, you're a heretic, you support the Avignon Pope, you're a, a, schism, a schismatic. There's none of this. Um, this is very different than, say, 
point of comparison, say, the uh, schism that happens after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where there, there are doctrinal issues at stake, or more immediately for us as Latin Rite Catholics, the Reformation, where it was definitely not merely about power. It, you had fundamental, fundamental doctrines of the faith at stake. That's not really clear here. Um, this is partly about institutional fighting that became um, um, uh, a mess uh, unnecessarily. The second thing is uh, here, I think you kind of see, um, you see some of the problems the late medieval church is encountering. Uh, the papacy had done something very um, momentous in the early part of the Middle Ages. If you listen to my lectures, hopefully, Roman Reform, all of those sorts of things. It created this very much unified institution across all Western Christendom, which made the church, you say, more unified, gave it a unity it hadn't had before. That's a good thing. The problem, of course, if you're going to have a big institution like that, uh, this is the thing. It doesn't run on nothing. You want to send missions to far-flung areas of the earth? You need money. If you're going to try to face down kings and get them to stop fighting uh, or get them to respect the church's rights, guess what? That takes money. That's a problem, right? This is the problem with the papacy in Avignon, right? They're, they're great administrators. As I think we've kind of seen already, the, uh, the characteristics, the virtues that make for a good administrator are not the same things uh, that make for a saint. Uh, combining a good administrative capability with uh, holiness and virtue, not easy at all. And of course, it's not, it's true, by the way, the Christian flock needs, it needs to have its needs administered in, in an institutional sense at some point. But of course, what it needs more than anything else, of course, is holiness. To be led to holiness, to become saints, so they can spend eternity with God. And so what's happening at the end of the Middle Ages is that what had been a means to an end to unify the church is getting in the way of its primary mission in practical terms. It's a problem. And in fact, it's, all, it's been a problem ever since, obviously. Um, I, I don't need to belabor this, but of course you have, you know, bishops today are, you know, let's be honest, they're mostly administrators and fundraisers. That's mostly what they do. I have, anybody know, if you don't know, um, I follow Janet Smith on Facebook. I know this is, this is whatever. Janet Smith's been a big defender of Humani Vitae. She's a theologian. She posted something last week that kind of floored me, but didn't really floor me. She uh, She's reporting third, third or fourth hand, but I think this is what it's worth. She said that um, one of her, a priest she knew, told her that uh, he had talked to his bishop one time, and his bishop had admitted to him that he had not heard confessions for 20 years. What are you doing if you're a bishop and you're not, <laughs> you know, and again, this says something about more than just moral failings, maybe about the belief of the bishop. Um, but I think the same thing applies in the Middle Ages. Maybe they, maybe they believe, but they're not, they're not taking care of the things that you've been taking care of. And perhaps, by the way, it's a matter of the whole Christian, whole of Christendom maybe having irreconcilable expectations of wanting to have this totally unified church as an institution, and maybe it's, I don't know, I don't know. But they seem to be coming in conflict in the Middle Ages, and um, today it's much different in many ways, but I think it's still obviously a problem. Just the, the, sheer, the sheer things that a bishop has to do 
you wonder if they ever have time for the things you think they should be doing. And then finally, the third thing is, and again, this is something I need to stress about the papacy. Bears repeating. The papacy, when they began, the, when the medieval papacy began to assert its, uh, its authority vis-a-vis -vis the kings of Europe uh, over the church, governing it, ruling it, they almost never made what in modern terms we would consider uh, dogmatic declarations of their authority to justify what they did. There's nothing like you have, say, the First Vatican Council in 1870 where they, they define clearly as a dogma, this is what papal authority can do, this is what it can't do. They never did that. They basically just used, they, they leaned heavily on, you know, the Bible, Matthew 16, 19, and tradition as a theological basis for the assertion of their claims. But in practice, what made papal authority in the Middle Ages was not anything dogmatic. It was canon law. They built up the institution of the church um, through building up canon, uh, it's, its legal authority. And the problem, of course, with that is that they didn't have anything in the canon laws, you know, a lot of it has to do with precedent. There was simply no precedent for the situation they were in. There was no precedent, by the way, for how do you remove a pope if he's a violent nut job? And I'm not saying Urban VI was. Um, but if you had complaint, you couldn't, the only thing you could do is say his election was invalid. And that's why when those cardinals, and I, by the way, if you haven't made clear here, I think the cardinals who elected the anti-pope are the problem. They, they are the main people responsible for this. But it's not like Urban VI wasn't responsible in some ways. I mean, he really had problems. <laughs> um, and so the, the lack of a, a way to deal with that in canon law was a problem. That's all you had. Um, in fact, there wouldn't be a, a dogmatic statement, like contemporary dogmatic statement defining papal authority uh, until 1439. I'll get to that. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it here, but basically it never had. It was never dealt with dogmatically or even theologically. It was dealt with through canon law. So uh, those things fed into it and this extraordinary situation. What about its effects at the time? Well... In general, let me just say, did this damage the pap uh, papacy's authority? Uh, yes. <laughs> and I say damage its authority, I should probably mention. Probably, I, I doubt it did much. Again, this is me, I'm guessing, not an expert. Uh, among ordinary people, probably not that much. Again, you have to remember in the Middle Ages, ordinary people didn't have much to do with the papacy. It was a very different figure. Did it cause divisions within the hierarchy? As you're going to see, yes. Because it leads to a movement which we call conciliarism, which will flourish for a couple decades after uh, the Council of Constance, uh, which, by the way, deserves its own lecture, probably coming next year, uh, if I have time to do this, um, in which, uh, because the Council of Constance had, among other things, <clears throat> besides asserting its authority, had decreed there should be frequent councils after uh, they were held. There were several councils held in which they tried to assert their authority of the Pope. They lost out in the end, uh, but it led to another minor schism in the 1420s and 30s, uh, 1430s and 40s, I should say. So, yes, it did. It led to this full-blown, you know, attempt to establish something like a whatever conciliar model of, of, of governance at the highest level. It doesn't work, but it's there. Based on, by the way, that, that document I mentioned from the Council of Constance. 
It also led to indirectly, uh, say indirectly, I should say directly, led to massive wars in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, particularly in Bohemia, uh, because of course Bohemia was in the Holy Roman Empire, and they had been there had been a reformist party in. This is a long story and complicated and tedious and awful, uh, in which. Um, the kingdom of the kingdom of Bohemia, the kingdom of Bohemia, tried to basically assert its independence from the empire. Why does this matter? Because of course, Emperor Sigismund was the one who called the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance, of course, burnt to death uh, for heresy the leader of that movement, Jan Hus. This is why these are called the Hussite Wars, because his followers. And by the way, this is the crazy thing: they Emperor Sigismund was a, a, a powerful figure. They defeated him every time, like four or five times, about couldn't touch him, and they effectively established de facto their own schismatic church. Eventually, they were brought back into communion with Rome after a few decades. But again led to more dissensions because of this. They were you know, big on reform issues and stuff like this. Long story, I don't have time to go into it. I want to bore you with this. Um, so it had that. Again, that's partly Sigismund's fault. Uh, not necessarily the, the, uh, the papacies of the churches. It also probably put, I can say, the death knell um, to any chance of real reform, at least with regards to the papacy, or even, even, even with regards to the, the councils afterwards. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why uh, conciliarism uh, became a, a powerful issue after the council is because a lot of people associated it with uh, general councils with reform. The idea was, that, hey, they're more representative, they include more people, this will look for reform. It was one of the major failures, by the way, of the Council of Constance. They didn't do a whole lot toward that. They ended the schism, they got rid of, uh, they condemned Wycliffe and Hus. The reform never really happened. And uh, it's a kind of an amazing thing. I, the, the phrase, by the way, that I began this uh, part of the lecture, a marvelous and perilous reunion. Um, probably because the council did about all it could. I don't think people could have stood too much more of councils. Uh, just to give you an idea, um, one of the French cardinals who attended Constance, I think Cardinal Philastra, uh, wrote of it later on that, quote, this council of Constance, more than all of our previous councils, was when convoked with so much difficulty to, Convoked with so much difficulty, uh, so singular in its progress, so marvelous and perilous, so long duration, you can almost feel the exhaustion in that, in that little excerpt of his. Uh, it kind of wore people out. In fact, when they tried to hold, by the way, another council in 1422, uh, Martin V, um, he had to he had to dissolve it because hardly any cardinals showed up. <laughs> they were just sick of it by then. It really exhausted the, the schism, people's energies for maybe making changes, perhaps, that might have maybe uh, fixed some of these problems. Maybe not. I don't know. And then finally, we have to deal with the Reformation. Um, normally, as an historian, I tell my students, you never, you don't try to read backward into history. And I don't think, by the way, let me be clear, I don't think the schism actually led to the Reformation. I don't. One of the reasons why, by the way, is because you read Reformation polemics from the when it, things get going, it's never that big of a deal in and of itself. Uh, Martin Luther mentions it, but he's, it's it not really a big deal for him. Um, I happened to be reading the other day for another project of mine some writings of James I of England, uh, who was writing criticism of the papacy, long story short, and he mentions it briefly in passing. It's not a big deal. And the reason why is because at that point, you're not talking about, oh, the papacy is bad and needs to be reformed. You're talking about, oh, the Bible is the true authority, not the papacy it needs to be gotten rid of. And that's why, in and of itself, there's not a real lot of direct connection, I think, to the Reformation. 
On the other hand, of course, what it probably did was get people looking for some way to curb the worst excesses of the medieval church. And in that sense, probably did, yeah, it probably did lessen the authority of the church. And then again, in particularly those two groups, the clergy, because as you know, of course, the Reformation will start with a monk, uh, but also among the, the, the literate laity who are growing increasingly more confident, increasingly less inclined to defer the church. Yeah, and one of the things you have to remember about the church in the Middle Ages is it's the only real civilized institution that exists for much of that period. And so it naturally takes up a bigger public role than it ever has before. The problem is, of course, it got used to this as time went on when you did begin to have civic institutions revive. And it really didn't need to have the church intervene so much in uh, affairs that took its, maybe took its eye off the ball from its main, its main uh, mission. Um, and so it actually doesn't, uh, strangely enough, uh, find its way into Reformation polemics. Uh, but it almost certainly, certainly contributed to the general atmosphere at the end of the Middle Ages. Um, in fact, I'll give you, I'll give you, I forgot to mention this actually, among the reactions to the, to the papal uh, schism, I'll probably sign off with this, but um, I, I forgot to mention that some people were happy about it. Uh, particularly some secular rulers. Why? Well, because it means the papacy couldn't interfere as much as it used to when it was divided by two people. In fact, at one point, this is the quotation I was thinking of, the, um, you all remember, of course, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici. This is the great uh, leader, the sort of despot of Florence uh, from the Medici family, Lorenzo Mag the Magnificent, the Magnifico, the patron of, of Leonardo da Vinci and all this stuff, great Renaissance artist, art patron. He uh, was reported to have said at one time when, when there were the, I guess the Pisan Council happened or close to this, that he, um, that he wished there had been four different popes. Because uh, then, of course, they could act more freely without interference from papacy. So, um, so in, in other words, again, just, you can see this. Anyway, my point is that you have this uh, massive division, which, again, it's very strange. In the Middle Ages, I don't think it did affect that many people, but it affected a lot of people who... Uh, I think we're looking at the church differently as time went on. Like, ah, why can't you live up to what you, uh, what you, um, why can't you, you know, why can't you just do the things you, why, why can't you live up to the, the things that you're preaching, basically? Um, that's why, and I, can, I think, again, we're coming into, I mentioned this, you know, this topic came up, um, uh, I thought about it last year, but people have been, you know, in the current climate of the church, you know, that we have, you know, things going on in the church, uh, in Germany, for example, and the, the talk of schisms in the air. And so I say this, I, I think the church could survive something like the Great Schism because it wasn't about doctrine. As bad as it was, you can still, you can reconcile that. You have to remember, again, the church, uh, you're going to have power struggles in the church. It's horrible. It's wrong. It's going to happen. Um, but to add that to doctrinal things is well you get something like the reformation which was a cataclysm so um in any event papacy survived the church did survive by the middle of the 1450s uh it was more or less healed uh even if things still weren't great and so um here endeth the lecture i um thank you guys whoever's watching i want to apologize again for the snafu with the live stream uh you have my word uh, I will definitely correct this. I will definitely get it better. And you can ask me questions in real time. 
Uh, for now, though, you can when you watch this, you can uh, type in the comments, questions. I'll respond as quickly as I can. Any questions you may have, um, and um, be on the lookout for the next uh, next talk, which I'll be recording for next month, hopefully live. Um, and uh, uh, take care, everyone. Be healthy, be safe, uh, and God bless you all. Take care.